Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room. My name is Bill Finley. I am a correspondent for the TDN and the co-host of the Down the Stretch Radio Show on Sirius XM Radio. Good to see you again, Bill. I'm Randy Moss uh, with NBC Sports. Trustee sidekick Lucy back there. She's semi-conscious, but uh, ready to roll. Well, the big news this week wasn't really news in so far as something we weren't expecting, but they made it official, Randy. The 2024 Belmont Stakes, and presumably the 2025 as well, will be run at Saratoga. A uh, couple uh, news and notes out of that, a couple differences. Race will be run at a mile and a quarter. The purse will be $2 million and it's part of a four-day festival, which will start on Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There'll be 23 stakes races for a total purses of $9.7 million. Um, Randy, I'm all for it. I don't think they had really any other options. Some people have mentioned, why didn't you run it at Aqueduct? That absolutely wouldn't have worked if you asked me. Some people are wondering, well, why sh can't you still run it at a mile and a half, even though the race, if you did that, would start at the three-eighths pole right on top of the far turn. So um, I think it's going to be fantastic, uh, something we're all going to remember. Um, uh, you know, the final leg of the Triple Crown being run in the Mecca of Thoroughbred Horse Racing. Well, you can probably guess what I'm going to say about this. Uh, yeah, run it at Saratoga. I love Saratoga. That's great. Um, you know, it's going to uh, be a totally different vibe, the Belmont Park stakes and all the races surrounding it at Saratoga. Uh, but run it at a mile and a half. Look, when Belmont was last being remodeled in the 1960s, uh, Naira ran the Belmont stakes for five years at Aqueduct, 1963 through 1967. Both Aqueduct and Saratoga are a mile and an eighth in circumference. They started the race on the turn at the three-eighths pole, and it went off for five years without incident, okay? Um, it, looking at the two racetracks, uh, you can perhaps make the case that Saratoga is a bit different because even though they're both a mile and an eighth in configuration, Saratoga has a bit of an odd quality in that the back stretch and the home stretch, the track is 100 feet wide, and it narrows pretty dramatically around the turns to about 68 to 70 feet wide. Now, the starting gate that Naira uses is a little less than 60 feet wide. So perhaps Naira feels that that would be maybe just a little bit too cramped to put the starting gate out there on the turn. Uh, but look, I like I find it somewhat hypocritical that uh, that the New York Racing Association will go uh, apoplectic when you talk about moving the date of the Belmont Stakes, moving the spacing of the Belmont because of tradition. And yet the Belmont Stakes at a mile and a half distance is a much longer and to me, much more important tradition than the actual date of the race as it pertains to the pre to the Derby and the Preakness. Like the last 98 years, 97 times the race has been run at a mile 
and a half. The only exception in that 98 years was the COVID year of 2020, when, of course, you know, tis the law won it uh, at a one-turn mile and an eighth. Those were extenuating circumstances. So I had no problem with the Belmont Stakes at Saratoga. I mean, you got to you got to run it somewhere else besides Belmont due to construction. Uh, to me, if you're not going to run it at a mile and a half, run it at Aqueduct like you did before. I think they should run it at Saratoga. That's fine. Start it on the turn if you can at a mile and a half. If not, run it at Aqueduct and keep it at a mile and a half. I think that's important. Okay, so a couple of, uh, I want to react a couple of points you've made. Um, I obviously wasn't around to watch the 1964 Belmont Stakes at Aqueduct, but if I were, I probably would have told you back then it was a mistake to run it at a mile and a half. So why duplicate the mistake later? I mean, suppose a horse is going for the Triple Crown and he gets post 11 in a 12 horse Belmont field uh, at Saratoga starting. I mean, it's not. It's not like they have a little run up to the turn. It starts right where that turn begins. And, you know, for, and I know I said, well, it's a long race. It would be a mile and a half. Things will work themselves out. These riders will figure out a way. Well, um, you know, no, if you're going to go nine wide on that first turn, um, you're going to have to be on an awful good horse to make up uh, the, the difference uh, of uh, of going so far wide on that turn. Now, back to whether or not they should run it at Aqueduct, there's two problems with that. Number one, Aqueduct's a dump. But even more so, Randy, this is not the same Aqueduct of 1967 when they used to get 35,000 people or so on a Saturday. The casino takes up I mean, no one before the casino came, nobody had sat in those seats since 1967. And, you know, except for the pigeons who leave behind, you know what. But the casino uh, takes up so much space of the grandstand that even though you think of Aqueduct as this massive structure, I don't know exactly how many seats it has. But it, but it would be a very small number. Um, you, you know, you, you're not going to get a hundred thousand people to come out for a non triple crown year, uh, Belmont stakes, especially at Aqueduct. But, you know, I think even to accommodate a crowd of maybe 40,000, 45,000, I don't know if Aqueduct could do that. No, it comes to, it all comes down to the lesser of two evils. Right. Do you start the race at a mile and a half on the turn or do you drop the distance down to a mile and a quarter? All you heard was hand wringing about the prospects of spacing out the Triple Crown races. Oh, if there's a Triple Crown, you know, there'll be an asterisk. It'll cheapen the accomplishment, which is bogus because the Preakness Stakes would actually become a tougher race to win if the races were spaced out. But what would be more of an asterisk? A Belmont Stakes at a mile and a quarter, as opposed to being the test of the champion at a mile and a half? You've already proven that the horses can handle a mile and a quarter in the Kentucky Derby. You're not proving anything distance-wise by running the Belmont Stakes at a mile and a quarter. And I know it's temporary uh, while Belmont is being remodeled. But to me, it just comes down to the lesser of two evils. And I think the bigger evil in this situation, in my opinion, is running the Belmont Stakes at a mile and a quarter. Well, you know, I agree with you about the spacing of the Triple Crown races, and I see the point you're trying to make. Just for fun, um, a couple of notes. Um, this will be the fifth racetrack the Belmont has been run at, Saratoga, Belmont, Aqueduct, Morris Park, and Jerome Park. And also, we're talking about distances. You mentioned it was a mile and eight during the COVID year. Um, for a while, uh, it was at a mile and three-eighths. matter of fact, Sir Barton, the first Triple Crown winner, won a mile and three-eighths Belmont stake. It's also been run at a mile and a quarter. Now, Randy, I, I, I know you um, bleed NBC uh, peacock colors um, and would like nothing more than to be covering that um 
uh, Belmont at Saratoga. But when I saw the hotel prices, I think maybe NBC is okay, Fox, you can have it. Uh, take a guess, the Adelphi Hotel. Now, now, granted, this is one of the premier hotels in town. I went on their website this morning. They only have one room left. It's a suite for the four days. Take a guess at how much it is per night. A suite. All right. I First of all, if NBC was doing the Belmont Six from Saratoga, we'd be staying in Schenectady, I think. <laughs> um, not that NBC's cheap, but it's just that the room rates are so expensive. I actually looked into the Adelphi once upon a time. Uh, on the thought that maybe I would just pay the difference and mm-hmm. stay at Delphi and get that nice experience. And during the regular Saratoga meet, it was something like $1,000 a night. So now you're talking about a suite on Belmont Stakes at Saratoga Day, uh, $2,500. $4,026. Oh, $4,000 a night, 16000 for the f- full four years. Um, the embassy suites, a more, um, you know, mainstream hotel. Embassy suites are nice. Um, but you know, they're, they're kind of standard fare. $1,467 for the four nights. So, um, if you're going to go to the, if you don't live in the capital area, uh, and you're planning to go for the Belmont, um, festival, um, you, you better pack a lot of <laughs> pack a lot of money in that wallet because it is not going to be cheap. And we don't even know yet what what Naira is going to charge for uh, the packages, which I'm sure will be for the uh, the whole four days. I don't think they're going to let you just pick and choose uh, that sort of thing. But we have a little different opinions on this. I think it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think it should be run at a mile and a half, but um, this is good stuff to talk about, Randy. And uh, looking forward to the 2024 and no, not 100% sure 2025 Belmont being run at Saratoga. It'll be interesting. And the bottom line is it'll be a lot of fun to, to have those races run at Saratoga. As always, the TD and Riders Room is brought to you by Keeneland, which is catalog 1,401 horses, plus dozens of supplemental entries for the 67th January Horses of All Ages sale. That will cover four sessions from January 8th through 11th, 2024, of course, and the catalog includes broodmares, broodmare prospects, newly turned yearlings, horses of racing age, stallions, and stallion prospects. Book one will be Monday and Tuesday, the 8th and 9th. Book two, Wednesday and Thursday, the 10th and 11th. Each day the session begins at 10 a.m. At Keeneland. A horse will always be measured in hands. Hands that see, that sense, that speak. Hands that hold our sport to a higher standard. Not for our sake, but for theirs. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. The TD and Riders Room, also brought to you by the Fast Sires of Windstar Farm, as always, the sponsor of our Fastest Horse of the Week segment. There are fast sires, and there were sires who were fast. And Life is Good certainly falls into the latter category. Among sons of Into Mischief that are standing at stud, Life is Good has the most triple-digit buyer speed figures, nine. It's got the highest buyer speed figure, 112, and as a stallion, he bred 192 mares in 2023, and Life is Good has a new fee in 2024 of $85,000. Life is Good, not just good, he's brilliant, and he stands at stud at Windstar Farm. Fastest horse of the week. 
No triple digit buyers last week, but we have a really interesting horse at the top of the list. His name is Touch Upon a Star. He's a Louisiana bred that won the Louisiana Champions Day Classic on Saturday at the fairgrounds. That's the day for LA breads. It's a $150,000 race at a mile and an eighth. Touch Upon a Star, owned by former NFL quarterback Jake DeLome's Set Hut Stable, trained by Jake's older brother, Jeff. Source is a four-year-old gelding. All he's done is win now 10 of 13 lifetime starts, and he scared away all the competition at the fairgrounds. Only a four-horse field. The horses won now nine of his last 10 races on Saturday. Got a buyer speed figure of 97. Earlier this year, Touch Upon a Star ran three straight races where he had a 101, 101, and a 102 buyer speed figure. This horse can really run. He's a son of Star Guitar, the noted a Louisiana Stallion that only won 24 of his 30 lifetime starts. Touch Upon a Star, this week's fastest horse of the week. Well, other news made this week. Pat Valenzuela. Well, I remember him. Of course we do. What a great talent he was. And also someone who was remembered for many of his off-track problems. He's 61 years old now, and he's talking about making a comeback. He says he's been galloping horses at Santa Anita and Del Mar, uh, is trying to work his way back into shape. What happened in two th- when he last rode in 2016 was he tore his ACL, and that is what kept him out until he said he got a knee replacement surgery. So he hasn't been absent from riding for uh, reasons belonging to substance, uh, belonging to substance abuse problems, whatnot. He's very serious about this, Randy. I guess there's a lot of questions to, to um, uh, be answered here. Um, one of which he admits is probably the biggest obstacle. He weighs 128 pounds and admits that at age 61, it's a lot harder to take off weight and if you were 21. So can he get down to riding weight? It's one of the questions he's got to answer, but he thinks he can do it. He's going to try. Uh, Randy, can P-Val make it back? <laughs> I don't know what the biggest challenge is. The fact that he weighs 128 pounds or the fact that he's a 61-year-old coming off a blown ACL. Uh, when he last rode in 2016, P-Val was not riding at the at the A-level racetracks. You know, he was, he was trying to knock out a living at some of the smaller racetracks around the country. Um, he's obviously, you know, been a very, very talented rider. The first thing that anyone would think right now when they're looking at this from a distance, P-Val wants to come back and ride again at age 61, is that, and I don't know this for a fact because I don't know P-Val very well, that he needs the money. Uh, you know, obviously, if he can win races as a jockey, uh, he can make more money than he would make exercising horses or whatever else he would want to do within the horse racing industry. And a lot of these guys really don't know anything else but to ride horses, right? If if he can make it back, if he can get his weight down, if he can ride at, you know, uh, let's say Evangeline Downs or uh, Louisiana Downs or someplace like that in Louisiana and and still be able to win a few races and pay some bills and all that, then uh, more power to P-Val. But it's going to be uh, very fascinating to watch. And obviously, uh, the odds are stacked against him. He's been in California uh, kind of hanging around the racetrack. Zoe Cadman told us that, you know, he's been a regularly seen, you know, trying to drum up some uh, some business as an exercise rider, breezing horses, galloping horses, et cetera. Um, 
This is uh, this is unprecedented, really, for a jockey of his stature uh, and his accomplishments to try to come back at this age. Uh, but, you know, as we said, the odds are uh, really against him. More power to him. Yeah, we'll see what happens. And when he last rode in 2016, it was seven years ago when he was, okay, so seven years ago, he would have been 54. He only won 17 races um, with an 8% uh, winning rate. So that, you know, he's obviously not going to come back to Santa Anita Del Mar and be riding in the grade ones on a Saturday. He doesn't expect that. Another thing, um, when I wrote the story, um, I got a text uh, the next day from a jockey who uh, was up, uh, someone who rode during his uh, era. And he was upset with me um, for, I think, more so from some things I said on the radio show uh, rather than what I wrote, kind of cheerleading a little bit for Pat Valenzuela. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who, this, who, who sent me this, but he said, here is a guy who was, was blessed with great natural ability and has consistently taken it for granted and squandered it. There are hundreds of riders that have dedicated themselves to the craft of race riding that would have that have worked harder with less natural ability and were never given the opportunities that he has so cavalierly thrown away. I don't disagree with that. But, Randy, that's no reason not to allow the guy to come back. I mean, if the stewards and, and whatever doctors he's got to pass through say that he's fit to ride, if that's what he wants to do, um, I, I, who is he harming by coming back? Uh, absolutely nobody. And like you said, you know, look, if, if he r- rides three a week at Louisiana Downs and, and wins 12, 15 races a year, that's probably what we're going to come to expect. But I know um, this might be his not his second chance, his third chance. This might be his 34th chance. But, you know, I, I don't see why anyone would hold his past against him uh, when it comes down to this and just something he wants to do. Oh, yeah. All the things that you just attributed to uh, to the unnamed jockey who got in touch with you, I don't think anyone would argue with. Right. But I mean, the, the only reason we're talking about this is because it's a news story. It is news when a jockey of his background and a jockey of his past success, for whatever reasons, decides to try to come back at age 61. I mean, we're not celebrating Pat Valenzuela when we talk about this. We're just pointing out uh, what the news is and that it is a very unusual and, uh, you know, semi-interesting story to try to follow as, uh, as he makes his comeback, if he actually makes it that far. Yeah, let's see if he can. By the way, I want to remind you that the TDN Riders Room is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. The 2024 Stallion and Boarding Farm Directory is now available on our website, pabread.com. Take a look at the five new stallions standing in Pennsylvania for 2024. If you breed to a registered PA sire and become a PA bred, you'll be eligible for a 40% breeder award, up to 40% in owner bonuses, 30 stakes just for PA breds, and 200 restricted races. Last leg of the $1 million two-year-old PA sired PA bred stallion series set for December 27th with two $200,000 races at a mile and 70 yards. We'll be right back after this message from the PHBA and Linda Rice will join us on the Green Group Guest of the Week segment. Stay with us. PA Bread, I think we've built a, a brand at this point. The state of Pennsylvania has the best breeders program in the entire United States. Angel of Empire wins the Arkansas Derby and wins it clear. Caravelle in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. 
Pennsylvania and the PHBA have the best state-bred program in the country, bar none. The best Breeders' Awards and Stallion Awards in the country. The best two-year-old by legendary sire, Quality Road. In about a million five. Very, very impressive debut. Cantering home could not have been more impressive. Coast to coast in the American Pharaoh. He's the real deal. Undefeated and unchallenged at two. He's just too good. He wins the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Cornish. Cornish. And now a TDN Riders Room. Welcome to our newest sponsor, the Coolmore Stallion of the Week. And the first Coolmore Stallion of the Week is Corniche, who was an undefeated two-year-old in 2021 and the two-year-old champion, of course, the winner of the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, the American Pharaoh, and also his maiden win. Three for three as a two-year-old. Obviously, he was precocious. Corniche, a son of Quality Road, out of the mare, wasted tears. He never even got a chance to run on the turf. He might have been quite a turf horse as well because Wasted Tears won six graded stakes all on the grass. So maybe Corniche will be a switch hitter as a stallion. What does Tom Ryan of SF Bloodstock, former owner of Corniche, think of him? Here's a quote from Ryan. Standing for less than $100,000, Corniche is the best physical first season stud I've seen. He profiles well to get off the mark with early two-year-olds. Corniche stands at Coolmore USA for a fee of only $25,000. The TD and Writers Room brought to you by The Green Group, a tax consulting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and specializing in saving you money on your taxes. And we welcome in now the Green Group Guests of the Week. Always lots of things to talk about with Linda Rice, who is our guest, but particularly so this year as she's in the midst of a career year for her stable. Matter of fact, uh, we're uh, recording this on a Wednesday. She has 157 wins on the year at the Naira Circuit. She's tracking David Jacobson for the all-time record. Jacobson had 164 wins in 2013. Linda, welcome. And uh, are you going to be able to catch that David Jacobson for the record? Is that something that you're looking forward to or something that you're really pointing for? Well, I, I really hadn't thought about it much, but a few of my friends have been prompting me lately that I need to, uh, you know, become a little more aggressive with my entries for the next couple of weeks. And, and uh, right now, I think we really only have about eight days of racing left. And I think I need about eight wins to get there. So, uh, and they've been coming kind of slow and hard the last couple of weeks. So I don't know, you know, and, and I've told them, I said, look, no matter what, it's been a great year. And uh, they poo-pooed that idea. They said, oh, no, oh, no, you need to <laughs> dig down, dig deep, get this done. So. Well, it, it kind of looked improbable for you at the, toward the end of the Saratoga meet as well, but you were able to close in 21 and change and get that one done. <laughs> yeah, that uh, was... Uh, that was amazing. I mean, we were five down with two days left. So uh, it was um, amazing and uh, improbable. So you've been successful for a long time, probably never more so than just in the last four or five years this year in particular. I don't know how you feel about being called the best female trainer in the country when you're one of the best trainers, period, in the country. What, what's been the most personally gratifying to you about your uh, success as a trainer? Sometimes when you take young horses and they turn into great horses, that's very gratifying. But I suppose, you know, in this year, having won 
made after made after made in New York has been very gratifying. And it does sting just a little to be the best female trainer. Um, so maybe that takes a little bit of the sting out of that, you know, by being able to win consistently in New York. Um, because, of course, uh, you know, this is not a, a game of Phillies and Colts, <laughs> you know, as far as the entry. So I suppose this year, having won five training titles in a row, maybe takes the sting out of being uh, known as a top female trainer. So you say the sting. It, it, do you think it sort of diminishes your overall accomplishments when someone labels you like that? On occasion. It's, it's supposed to be flattering, so I try to take it that way. But, uh, you know, there's an undertone to it. Good point. Well, Linda, as uh, was just mentioned, you won five, either one outright or tied for five straight training titles. Um, the streak ended at the uh, Belmont and Aqueduct meet when Chad Brown beat you out for that one. And as Randy mentioned, you've been among the most consistent trainers on the New York circuit for a long time. I mean, year after year, you're, you're hitting the winner's circle with regularities. But this year in particular is definitely going to go down as best in history. Um, for instance, last year, your uh, stable earnings were 5.7 million. Uh, you've already gone over the 10 million mark uh, this year. And we mentioned the um, 157 winners on the year at Naira. Well, it shows how little you run out of town. You have 159 winners altogether. And uh, that too could um, break your personal record for most wins in a year. Um, what is going right this year? What, you know, what has made Linda Rice 2023 even better than Linda Rice 2022, 2021, et cetera? Well, you know, I think, you know, I try to look at my, my um, history of, of my career. You know, I'll take a look at the stats and say, well, what did we do differently here that changed, that improved our stats? So, uh, you know, I try to look at the end of the year stats and say, all right, so, um, we started getting in the five million uh, regularly um, in about 2013, and so then I think we kicked it up to about seven million in 2017. We had a, a great year that year. I think 166 wins. I did win quite a few races in Maryland. I was shipping to Maryland a lot that year with what I felt were horses that couldn't compete in New York. So that was a great year, you know. And then we have COVID, and we have you know. So there's always dips, but. I would say some of the things that really moved me forward in my business were um, staying in New York year-round, consolidating to New York. So I used to split my, my stable in the winter, send a division to Miami, keep the main division here in New York. Um, and I found out over the years that it was expensive. I spent all winter trying to recover my expenses, and I didn't feel like it moved us forward in any way, shape, you know, and in any way at all. So when the VLT money kicked in in New York to the purses, which was about 2013, I abandoned ship on Miami. I said, look, we're going to try something different. We're going to stay in New York. I'm going to consolidate my workforce. Frankly, we had a lot of work right here in New York in the winter. It's a tough job in the winter, and I needed all my best people right in front of me. So I think that is the one thing that I see on my career that was very helpful was to consolidate. And consolidating in New York when VLT money showed up was kind of a key move. Um, so that was one of the things. And I, I also think then going forward from there, I used to buy a lot of young horses, yearlings, two-year-olds in training, shopped all of the auctions, which I love 
I love to shop Wayland sales and Deerland sales and two-year-old sales. But I became, it became very frustrating to me. We would go to the auctions. We'd spend a lot of money and expenses between vetting and hotels and everything involved and a lot of time invested. And I felt frustrated when we came home and we weren't getting the horses bought that we wanted. We were buying horses that really weren't on the list of horses to take home. So, or you go home with nothing. And so I changed it up and I said, well, let's try something different. And that's when I started claiming more horses. I did find that my long history of young horses with my father before me um, was very helpful in the claiming game. And a lot of time spent, you know, confirmation, pedigree, that type of thing. And it helped me a lot in the claiming game. So I changed it up then once again, probably 2015. I may have started claiming more. And uh, so that's been the next bump to help my career. And Linda, the, what you just described, the way you've, um, you know, put your operation and, and the direction you've taken it, uh, the good news is that you know, everything we've been talking about, all the races you've been winning, all the, um, the New York training titles, but if you don't go spend a lot of money at the yearling and two-year-old sales, you're probably not going to be somebody that's going to have a Breeders' Cup and Kentucky Derby-like horses. Um, you know, is is that something that you think about? And, and is that, you know, kind of the price to pay for figuring out a formula that obviously is working for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you go to the sales without the pocketbook to buy those horses, it's a, it's a moot point, you know. So um, for me, winning is fun, losing is not, you know. And um, uh, if we can win races and some of the horses that I have claimed have won stakes races this year, and that's fun, that's successful. And at the price point that my clients are getting in, um, they're really enjoying themselves. Does it limit you with the idea that, geez, how am I going to get a derby horse? How am I going to get a Breeders' Cup horse? Absolutely. But I feel like if you prove yourself and you win enough races and that eventually, hopefully, people will see that you're certainly capable and will send you those horses. I would imagine that people noticed and it had to be uh, give you a lot of satisfaction to claim Joey Freshwater and then win the Bay Shore with him, claim pioneering spirit for 40000 and make $450,000 with him the same year. Uh, but uh, about the owners, uh, going back to your decision to base in New York year-round and not go to Gulfstream Park, did you get any pushback from your owners, Is some of your owners, about that decision? Or, or did the bottom line uh, smooth over everything in the end? You know, initially when I was sending horses to Miami, I had a few owners that like to go to Gulfstream for the winter. They like to take a couple horses down there. And that's part of the reason that we went. But, you know, after watching a, watching it for years, I mean, we'd send horses down there. They didn't get in. They couldn't compete. Um, by the time we came back from Miami, they were tired and needed a break. And it just wasn't moving us forward. And I decided, I said, well, I'm sure, certainly going to have some clients who want to send some horses to Miami. And they can send them with some, one of their other trainers, you know. And I also found that people were pretty interested and liked the idea. They wanted to race horses in New York in the winter. They thought the purses were good. The fields were a little shorter. And they were happy to know that I was going to be right here, right in the midst of it, at the barn every day. 
So it's, you know, it's twofold. You know, I lost a little, but I felt that I gained more. So, Linda, after um, Randy asked you some questions and, it, and you made it clear that um, in a perfect world, you just be considered a good trainer, not a good female trainer. I'm going to go back to that subject. Excuse me, because there is it's a, a delicate a, subject, Bill. It's a delicate <laughs> subject. <laughs> be careful, Bill. But no, because I want to hear. I, I'm sure you'll have a good answer for what I'm ab about to ask you. Jenna Antonucci, um, the year she had, the way she represented the sport and yes, it was, if, if she were John Antonucci and not Jen Antonucci, story would have played out much differently. Um, you know, did you, uh, were you there rooting for her, pulling for her? What, what did you think about, she, you know, sort of became a phenomenon for a while. You know, what was your take on all that? I was thrilled to death for, you know, Jen has been around the game a long time. And, you know, I, I whether it be Jenna, didn't have to be a woman, anyone, uh, the Rich Strike story. Any of these stories where people um, get a modestly purchased horse for $35,000 yearly, like um, he was, and go on to win those kind of races, and she did a wonderful job with him. It was fun to watch, to see the emotion that she had about it. Um, so to me, it was a fabulous story. But it wouldn't have mattered if it was Jenna, female, or John, just to see people get that opportunity to go to that level. You know, as you said, I mean, we have... There's quite a few owners in the game that go to the yearling sale with 25, 30, 40, 50 million and buy yearlings. And, you know, they usually go to about five different barns. You know? So for me, it's just a joy to see uh, somebody else get to win those big races. Let's talk about another modestly priced tourist. Um, for a long, long time, when I saw the name Linda Rice, the first horse that came to mind to me was City Zip, uh, who was originally a $9,000 purchase. And you, yes. won, you ran through all of those two-year-old races at Saratoga and then the Futurity, and then he came back and won four more stakes races as a three-year-old. What was it like to train City Zip and then to subsequently see his success as a stallion? Yeah, he was magnificent. I, I, uh, I kind of fell into that by, you know, I had uh, tried to buy a horse from Carl Bowling the year before at the two-year-old sale. And uh, I had a pretty good budget, and I got outbid at about, the horse brought 400000 I lost the horse. I think John Kimball outbid me. And uh, Carl was very thankful, and he said, listen, the next horse that you like that I don't sell, I'm going to send him to you to train. And that's how I got City Zip. The very next year, I liked City Zip. I wanted to buy him. He failed the vet miserably. <laughs> he had all kinds of little issues, nothing that really stood in his way. And uh, so he wasn't able to sell the horse. So he ended up starting in Kentucky, but he honored his word. He sent the horse to me to Belmont. And the uh, horse went on and did great things and did great things as a three-year-old. But he was just a terrific stallion. I, I was just so and impressed with how well he did as a stud. Yeah, going back and looking at his record, I mean, I, I thought I kept up with all these things. I guess I had forgotten that he's a half-brother to Ghost Zapper, who yes. came around a couple of years later. But here's a horse now in City Zip that was, he had, I think, like six triple-digit buyer speed figures. He won once at a mile or more. He won the Futurity Stakes, one-turn mile in New York. Um, you tried him on grass a couple times at the end of his career. Did it? Did his phenomenal success as a stallion and especially as a grass 
stallions surprise you at all? You know, I guess it shouldn't have. Um, you know, he was a little small and had a lot of imperfections. And uh, but despite all the fact that he was toed out and back in the knee and he had a, you know, he had a lot of imperfections. So I don't think anyone thought he was going to be a star as a stallion that he became. But he had a fantastic mind. Uh, Angel Cordero had said to me, I think Jose Santos wrote him for us all the time. And Angel said, you know, I've never seen a horse that could stop and start so many times in a race. He mm-hmm. could he could break from the gates if there was a strong speed horse in there. He would make him chase him, and then you could take a hold of him. Now that horse is already engaged, can't stop his run. He could take back, come again. He could just, he was amazing. And uh, so I guess it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise that he passed that along. Linda, with all your wins this year, um, perhaps your biggest win didn't occur on the racetrack, but occurred in the courtroom. And to make a long story short, um, the New York Gaming Commission accused you of getting favorable treatment from the racing office uh, to have a better idea of who was running in races and whatnot. And they uh, attempted to to, uh, take away your license for three years. Um, The courts came in and called their decision shockingly unfair. Very, very strong language there. When that happened, the three, the proposed three-year ban was lifted. A two-part question. What was it like having that hang over your shoulders? And what kind of relief was it when the court sided with you? Well, it has been uh, a very trying, long process to finally get there. And, you know, I've told my family, or <laughs> they've told me that, the fact that I've been able to maintain my the level that I have professionally under that type of pressure is quite amazing. Um, but it, it's been a huge relief to have it finally behind me. Um, it was very stressful, very hard on you know myself, my family, to watch me go through that. But we were very pleased with the appellate decision and uh, glad to have it over. Let's talk about some of the horses in your barn right now uh, going forward. I want to ask you about a couple in particular. Uh, I was pretty impressed with that New York bred two-year-old El Grande O that you've got. I mean, he had that off race in the Champagne, but I mean, when you look back on the Champagne, fierceness was behind him at the finish. And, you know, look what turned out there. What's what's in the future for El Grande O? And could he could we see him back against open company maybe in one of the uh, Triple Crown prep races? Yeah, we could. I mean, the Jerome is a possibility. Um, we He's raced quite a bit as a two-year-old, which is more than most two-year-olds. We had started him. Actually, he arrived in my barn in March last spring. We started a little earlier this year. And uh, he's raced three times at Belmont, twice at Saratoga, I think three times here at Belmont when we came back to Aqueduct. So we gave him a break after that win and sent him to Barry Schwartz's farm, Stonewall Farm, which is about an hour north of here. So he got a little turnout time, a little freshening, just came back, got his first breeze. You know, we just didn't want to keep his campaign going without freshening. Um, we'll probably look at the Jerome, whether we run him in the Jerome, the Wingfield, or the New York Red Stake, the Rigos Park. You know, that's up in the air. I think Barry and I would like to point towards the Jerome, but we're just going to have to kind of see where he is, you know, when we get there. And what's next for the uh, Garland of Roses winter hot fudge? Mm-hmm. And what's the update on Pioneering Spirit? I see he hasn't breathed since the Artie Schiller. What's what's the story? Yeah, Pioneer Spirit is 
rolling around in the sand in Ocala in a paddock and having a good time. He's getting a well-deserved break. So as, as you know, I don't send horses to Miami. And I felt the horse did a pretty good campaign. Um, I sent him down there to get some sunshine, a fresh in, give him 90 days. Um, you'll see him here in New York in the spring. And Hot Fudge? Hot Fudge will point her towards the inner borough. Well, Linda, whether you break or tie David Jacobson's record for most wins on the year in the New York circuit or not, uh, it's been a fantastic year for your stable. Congratulations on all your success. Thanks for joining us on the TDN Writers Room podcast and have a Merry Christmas and a winning 2024. Thank you so much, Bill. Randy. Thanks, Linda. As this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Linda Rice will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from Lynn Green and Company at the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group might be able to help you and your bottom line during tax season, you can go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Well, it's a quiet time of the year as it usually is before Christmas and the Southern California racing has moved to Los Alamitos. Uh, Gulfstream Park Championship meet is upon us, but they don't really run out the big races for uh, a couple of weeks now. But, you know, Bob Baffert, the story of Bob Baffert at Los Alamitos, I think, is doesn't quite get the recognition it deserves. Uh, last Saturday, he won the Starlet Stakes with Nothing Like You. Ten straight wins, excuse me, ten times overall, seven straight wins with nothing like you. On Friday coming up, he'll have two in the Bayacoa Stakes, Midnight Memories and Ganadora. Gracie's won only four times. But the other one that is amazing, Randy, is Los Alamitos Futurity. He's won it 13 times, though he hasn't won it since 2020. Uh, Practical Move actually won the race uh, last year, about the only race for two or three-year-olds on the calendar in uh, California that Bob didn't win. Um, a couple of things. Not only, I mean, does he have all, all these good horses to run, but I've always gathered that he has a soft spot for Los Alamitos because of his quarter horse days there. And, you know, that's where he really learned the trade. And he supports that meet more so than any top trainer in California. And I wish more people would support it because Los Alamitos really stepped up when Hollywood Park went out of business. And they had to put a ton of money into the racetrack to make it suitable for thoroughbred racing. And I know they don't have a turf course, but you just don't see the participation from the stables there that um, I, I think we'd really like to see. But uh, first of all, what do we know about the uh, Los Alamitos Futurity set? Saturday. What has Baffert gotten? Who else is lining up for it? 
Well, Bob obviously has a lot of horses to choose from. I mean, he's broken the maidens of 16 individual two-year-olds this year at either Santa Anita or Del Mar or Los Alamitos. And uh, if past history is any indication, he has horses in the barn that he hasn't even run yet that are as good or maybe better as some of the ones we've already seen. The, the logical candidates would seem to be uh, Nisos, uh, who won the Bob Hope so impressively in his maiden win before that, and Muth, who was second in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, won the American Pharaoh. He's got Prince of Monaco. He's got Miramati. But I reached out to Bob by text a couple of days ago. And as of then, the horses that he was looking at for the Los Alamitos Futurity, three of them, there's Wind Me Up, who was second behind Muth in the American Pharaoh at Santa Anita and then completely laid an egg in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, but it's trained pretty good since then. Uh, a horse called Coach Prime, a son of Quality Road, uh, who broke his maiden at Del Mar going a mile in his second lifetime start. And then a New York bred by the name of Winstock, uh, who started off a couple of times in sprints, uh, looking very unbaffert like for a two-year-old. No speed, uh, dull performances, but then when they stretched him out to a mile at Santa Anita, he broke his maiden pretty impressively. So those are the three that Bob is looking at. The only other horse I could find on anyone's list that would be uh, listed right now as a possible starter would be a horse named Stronghold, who was second to Nisos, a distant second in the Bob Hope in his last race. Strong, uh, Stronghold comes from the barn of trainer Phil D'Amato. Of Baffert's three, I think the most interesting is probably Coach Prime. Uh, uh, because his maiden win uh, at Del Mar going a mile was very impressive. If you look at the past performances of that race, one thing you'll note that jumps off the page is the pace of that one mile race at Del Mar. Uh, it's listed as 21 and two for the quarter, uh, 44 and two for the half, uh, then slowing down to like 111 and two for six furlongs. When you're handicapping the race, though, you got to keep in mind, and I haven't talked about this a lot lately because I talked about it so much before that, uh, the fractional times at Del Mar are garbage because they're timed by GPS, right? The final times now are okay, but at tracks like Del Mar and now Keeneland, amazingly, uh, the fractional times are still timed on GPS. The true fractional times for that one-mile maiden race are 21 and four for the quarter, two-fifths slower than posted, 45 flat for the half, two-fifths slower than posted, and actually 111 flat for six furlongs, which is two-and-a-half-fifths faster than what's posted. So it goes in both directions. Any way you slice it, though, it was a fast-paced maiden race. Um, this horse, Coach Prime, set about three or four lengths off the pace and then made a devastating move turning for home and opened up and won very impressively by seven-plus lengths. So he might wind up uh, being the favorite in the Los Alamitos futurity. But Bob's got three that he's looking at uh, to try to get his 14th, amazingly, his 14th win in that race. Randy, any speculation on what Nisos will do next? I don't know. No, I didn't ask. I didn't ask Bob, and he's kept it pretty close to the vest. As Bob does, you know, Bob goes a lot by feel, by the way the horses are training, by, you know, the cues that the horses give him visually and their most recent workouts. And he'll he'll wait until the last minute to decide whether to run a horse in a stick. Heck, whether to put a horse on a plane and ship him to Arkansas to run in some of those races, which he always supports as well at Oakland Park. 
So, you know, he was, uh, no, I haven't seen anything that could remotely be, uh, be set in stone as to what Nisos might be doing next. But he certainly has looked good, hasn't he? Yeah, he certainly has. Speaking of Coach Prime, the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. And the XBTV Workout of the Week is Coach Prime, named, of course, for Deion Sanders, now the head football coach at the University of Colorado. And he worked, not Deion the human, Coach Prime the horse, worked five furlongs at Santa Anita Saturday for trainer Bob Afford in 101.60. It was his second work since his TDN Rising Star-worthy performance at Santa Anita November 10th when he won by seven and a quarter lengths. Coach Prime was a $1.7 million Keeneland September yearling purchase by Donato Lano for owner Amir Zidane. According to trainer Bob Baffert, as we know now, because Randy just told us, Coach Prime is targeting the Los Alamitos maturity on December 16th and a mile and a 16th. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie and can uh, give you quite a bit of fun in the winter circle as well. West Point had sort of a, a viewing uh, recently, a record turnout for its yearling showcase which was at Iceman Equine and Eddie Woods Training Center in Ocala. The West Point partners got a chance to come out and check out the likes of their yearlings, including in the into mischief Nona Mia Colt, the half to Wood Memorial winner Outwork, who they purchased at the Keeneland September sale for $3 million. Another partner visit for uh, West Point is scheduled for late April, right before many of those horses will ship to their respective trainers around the country and begin their next lessons at the racetracks themselves. Well, that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank my partner, Randy Moss, our Green Group Guest of the Week, Linda Rice, our producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Leah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson, and our mascot, Lucy, Right over Randy's right shoulder Lucy. there. Hi, Lucy. Is that a dog? <laughs> there you there go. You go. <laughs> well, that's a wrap, not just for this week, but for 2023. We're going to take our annual two-week hiatus around the Christmas holidays, and we'll be back the first week in January here with the TDN Writers Room. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll see you in 2024. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.